Have you ever read a book and thought to yourself, I could explain this to someone else, but maybe there's a few things that I want explained back to me. I'll be sitting down with authors, thought leaders, visionaries. I'm your host, Josh Lipstone. This is Explain This Book to Me. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Josh Lipstone, and this is Explain This Book to Me. Today is book two, episode two, and I'm joined by the author of the book, The Extra Two Minutes, David Carruthers. Welcome back to the podcast, David. It's Friday. How are you today? It is Friday. That's all that needs to be said, man. I'm, I'm doing well. Uh, got some business renewed this week. Got some new business on the books. Looking forward to a weekend in the pool, man. There you go. Very nice. Looking forward to those pictures and maybe some uh, some food, some food that you'll be smoking. Well, this you know weekend. what? It's, it's funny, man. We're starting the whole thirty this weekend. We're starting it August first. Oh, so that's right. I'm going to have thirty days of literally purging my body of all toxins and everything else. Which, it you know, the first time we did it, it was pretty difficult because you don't even realize how much you're like cheating on certain things mm-hmm. it, you know just like one ingredient boom you're out you have to restart like wow you you're 30 but now that we've been through it a couple of times it's been a couple of years since we did the last one and i'm one of those places where i'm like eh, i really need to feel better and i'm eating a bunch of stuff i shouldn't be let's go ahead let's reset we'll reintroduce what we should and keep out what we shouldn't we have so many things that we like that we made from the meal plans on those diet on that diet. It's not really a diet, it's more of a lifestyle thing for 30 days. But so many things we're looking forward to that literally we could go the whole month with no problem at all because we haven't eaten this stuff in a couple of years. So I'm looking forward to seeing the results of it. Yeah. The hardest thing is you can't weigh yourself, man. You can't really? weigh yourself for 30 days. Wow. Yeah, it'll you be check progress. What, that, what happens yeah. with that, especially with going to Orange Theory every day. Oh yeah. So do you have your kids do it or just you and you and your wife? There will definitely be two separate meal plans in the house. Okay. Me and good. my wife and then the kids. <laughs> Very good. All right. Well, uh, if you haven't listened to episode one of this book, hit pause, go download it, come back and listen to this episode. And for those of you who are keeping score at home, we are recording this on Friday, July 31st, 2020. Now, David, before we get started, I wanted to see what was one or two things that stood out to you from the first episode. And I'll give you a moment just to kind of think about it. But for me, my biggest takeaway was when we talked about the personal board of directors. We didn't really get a chance to dive into it as much as I wanted to. But I know for me, not just in my business, but probably personal life, um, it's an area that I'm lacking. And so I need to find those people who are going to help hold me accountable to encourage me to be able to give me guidance and things of that nature. So David, for you, what was one or two things that stood out from the first episode? I would tell you the thing that probably stood out to me the most was I just, it, it actually kind of blew me away to look at how my sales process was selling satellite dishes door to door in West Virginia versus what my sales process looks like dealing with middle market commercial accounts. And you're actually the one who pointed it out in the last episode as you were asking the questions, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, holy cow, man, I was doing this back in my early 20s. And I've just adapted that style to a whole different product, if you will. And, you know, again, I joke about it all the time, man. I am a really predictable person for the most part. You know, when it comes to what I think, how I articulate that, I might not even remember having a conversation with somebody about something and you know maybe we had it in passing or whatever and 2 years later we will pick up and talk about the same thing and they'll remark that's almost verbatim what you said the last time. So I don't tend to stray very much from my core beliefs or what I think about things. And I will innovate, I will try new technologies or new processes or whatever, but that's a testament to that, man. The fact yeah, that definitely. I figured out, you know, what essentially has morphed into you know, listen I didn't invent total cost of risk in the insurance process, right? There are other people way smarter than me that came up with that. But just looking at the general sales style of Mm -hmm. of how we go about it, it, it's amazing how those two paralleled. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, very good. Well, let's go ahead and get into chapter two. And chapter two is identify your ideal 
prospect. And for me, I think this may be my favorite chapter of the book because it's sort of a soapbox item for me. So quick story for the loyal readers. And you heard this in book one, um, customer service, just foreplay I did with Jason Cass. So a little over four years ago, my agency purchased another one. It was our first agency purchase. And we had done our due diligence to the best of our ability. But in the end, we realized we didn't know what we didn't know. And so what we discovered in that first year of of having those new clients was that the uh, the prior agent didn't have the mentality that we necessarily had. He had the mentality of, if it fogs a mirror, write it. So they had written $200 general liability accounts for vacant land where the insured would call every year, have questions about their bill. And the amount of time that we would spend with these clients it exceeded the revenue. So we were losing money by having them. And so our agency philosophy, um, it's not as well-defined as it should be. We're working on that, but we have certain standards that we pretty much do not deviate from on a daily basis. And when we have, it generally comes back to kind of bite it, bite us. So now that I'm off my soapbox, let's go ahead and jump into the chapter. So David, you begin the chapter by stating that the prospect identification is one of the biggest challenges that you've seen in the insurance industry. And while I would agree, why do you think that is? Is it a matter of a lack of knowledge on the producer's part, a lack of planning on the agency's part, kind of a combination of the two? Why do you think it's one of the biggest challenges in the insurance industry? Um, I think it's probably has a lot to do with the fact that producers are under a significant amount of pressure to produce, right? People who sit in the chair of agency principal don't always have the patience for investing in a producer, right? So what I mean by that is I think that the insurance industry as a whole is severely lacking in production training, which is why I'm doing something about it, right? But right. you know, by and large, I, I don't think that agencies are equipped to train people. So that leads them to get unqualified people and then beat on them until they get numbers or get rid of them, or they overpay for somebody who is out looking for a job. Look, I've got a fundamental theory in insurance production. If you're a producer and looking for a job, you're not a producer. No producer should ever be out looking for work. You should be producing. You should have golden handcuffs on you and never want to leave where you're at because it's the best deal you're ever going to get. But I think that um, just the general lack of, of patience and tools necessary is what makes that a problem. And you just articulated it. I don't think that agencies even look at having minimum revenue thresholds. Some of them do. I can tell you, and you know this about me, we have a $5,000 minimum agency revenue threshold. If an account is not capable of generating $5,000 in revenue, we're not going to talk to them because we're just not set up to handle anything smaller than that. Now, that doesn't mean that if a producer comes in and they've got an account that's got a line of coverage that's renewing now for 2000 in revenue, and three months later, the other stuff comes up, that I'm going to tell them, no, we won't write it. We look at everything on a case-by-case -case basis, but when we engage with somebody, even if we're leading with a specific line, we're automatically going to place all other lines anyhow, because we will not work with people on a monoline basis. I have one exception in my entire agency, and it's a great account, and there's a very good reason why. But by not having the patience and the skills necessary to, to identify these things, and then again, the communication, right? So I had a guy that was struggling, and I was putting pressure on him. And just to your point, he's the one guy that I deviated from my hiring process on. And mm. so because I deviated from what I normally do, I got burnt. But he could not understand why I was getting increasingly irritated that he was bringing in accounts that were five five hundred to a thousand dollars in premium. Okay, wow, now, that's not something we're excited about by any stretch. But I'm definitely not excited about it when I, a middle market producer is the one who's going out and actually spending energy to generate that type of business. And so. I talked to him about it. And I said, you have to understand something, man. You're 40% new, 25% renewal. You bring in $500, 200 of that immediately goes to your compensation, not counting what my technology costs are, not counting what my taxes, tax liabilities and retirement and FICA and all of the other stuff that I contribute. 
I'm upside down. And he goes, well, if I bring in a hundred of them, I said, you've magnified the problem a hundred times, right? You can't bring in a hundred small accounts that are not profitable and think that somehow the aggregation of the whole will be profitable. Every single one of them loses money. So you've just lost a hundred times the amount of money. I don't think agency principals sit down and have that conversation and explain the why. I mean, I get into that a lot every time, you know, anytime I talk, we miss explaining the why. It doesn't matter if it's to our production. It doesn't matter if it's to our kids. It doesn't matter if it's to a prospect. You know, I use the example when I talk about the guy that um, reached out to me for the experience mod information, right? He had written a letter. He had had an in with the business owner. The business owner told him, oh, yeah, just talk to my admin. Sends me this message she sent where the admin was basically shutting him down like a gatekeeper. I put the letter together. and Within a few minutes, he had everything he wanted. And I told him, I said, the learning experience from this is you got to have the why, man. Tell somebody why you want the information, what you're going to do with it, how it's going to benefit them, and spend the time. Again, man, two minutes, right? The difference right. between giving somebody the why and asking the question in a short amount of time is literally you know, the title of my book. And for the loyal readers, go back and listen to that again. David just gave you the basically the magic bullet, the the silver bullet to be able to get past the gatekeeper. Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah, I mean, interesting. Um, I had a, a call. Um, a former client uh, had shut down a business. Called me, and they they were a smaller account. Um, they generated about two to three thousand in revenue for us, and ended up going out of business. And he called me this morning and said, hey, I've got a buddy who sort of worked with us doing the same thing, but on a much, much smaller scale. Um, and I said, well, you know, was he doing full time, part time? He's like, no, just, you know, once or twice a year. And I explained to him, I was like, look, I can help him, but I'm going to make $100 a year on this probably just based on him only wanting general liability. I said, I can't afford to do that. And as I explained it to him, he's like, yeah, that makes complete and total sense. He's like, it's a complete waste of your time. And he's like, and in fact, us just talking about it, I'm going to go ahead and let you go because <laughs> I'm picking up to your time. I was like, I really appreciate that. And he was like, of course, he's like, you were great, you know, when, when you worked with us. And I was like, yeah, I was like, well, have a good day. And I mean, it was less than a five minute conversation, but for someone to be able to understand that it was kind of refreshing. And if you get someone who doesn't understand that, then they were never your ideal prospect to begin with. Yeah. I mean, maybe if that guy had that rule in his business, he wouldn't have gone out. I mean, you uh, know, yeah, yeah. You he, know? That, that's, that's an interesting story, but yeah, I, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you to you sometime why, why they ended up going out of business. Well, you know, what's interesting to me is like, then there's other States like Texas, we can't do it here, but on an account like that, where there's not enough commission to justify you writing it, you can charge them a service fee. Yeah, we can charge us a service so fee. You here. can do that in addition to taking commission. Interesting. Yeah. See, we can't do that in Florida. You have one or the other. One or the, yeah. 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 I don't think that guy would pay a five thousand dollars service fee for oh. mineral liability on your policy. Exactly. Exactly. Um, now, David, how does a producer define who their ideal prospect is if they're new to the industry? And do you think that this should change over time? Like in your agency, when you bring in a new producer and they're brand new, maybe they've done payroll. I know that you you work with a lot of people that have done payroll before. How do they kind of figure out, all right, this is going to be my ideal prospect? Yeah, that's a really good question, man. I really think there's two things that people need to be thinking about. The first one is, what am I passionate about? What am I going to give my attention to, Right. The, one, the other one is, what need am I able to meet for those people? So over the course of my career, it's changed. Mm -hmm. um, I never really went after the what am I passionate about because I literally was passionate about my paycheck at the time. And I wanted to write as much business as I could. But what I did find was that there was a need that needed to be met. And that need in Florida at the time, and this may be the chapter of the book where I talk about it, um, is was property insurance okay mm -hmm. so a lot of people now that know me in the insurance community think that i am a, you know a workers comp guy and that's all i do that couldn't be further from the truth i'm an opportunist i look for where the needs are that aren't being met i find a way to meet those needs and then that becomes who my ideal prospect is so in the first years of my career 
you know, my ideal prospect was anybody who was life sciences, technology, light manufacturing, or a Department of Defense contract contractor, because that was the type of business Chubb liked to write. And then Chubb would be was the only carrier at that time in the admitted market that was writing property in Florida. So I knew that if they had masonry non-combustible construction from 1996 or newer, that I was going to be able to go in and more than likely get that account done, not really selling value at that time. I was selling a solution and that solution was standard market property insurance because everybody else was going in with excess and surplus lines. And I looked and having an appointment with Chubb was a huge value to me because it's a difficult appointment to get down here. So the yeah. fact that I had it meant not, you know, not a lot of other people did. So I became best friends with the underwriters and the marketing people and the branch manager. And I immersed myself in their appetite. And I based my ideal prospects around their appetite because I knew the need that needed to be met. And they were the only carrier that I had in house that could meet that need. So to kind of deviate just slightly, but something that um, in my agency, my, my father is the principal. And when we lived in California, he was with Nationwide Insurance. And one of his selling tactics was, I have Nationwide Insurance. Most agents do not have it. It's a tough appointment to get. And so he used that as the way to leverage and be able to write business. Do you ever think that independent agents, because for the majority of us, we all have the same companies, that that is sometimes a hindrance to us, that we don't have an exclusive market or company that we can hang our hat on? Or am I reaching on this? No, I think that I think that you're accurate in what you're saying. But I also think that if I think that a shortcoming that we have, and I'm guilty of this too, right, we get we go out, we get a bunch of contracts. And instead of us embracing the conversation with the marketing person or the underwriters, it becomes a hindrance to getting through our day. And so as a result of that, we're sitting here literally with an entire arsenal of wedges that we can drive because of one of what each one of those individual carriers is doing. And we neglect that because we're ignorant to it because we haven't taken the time to invest in the relationship with that company. Okay. Now, I'm not a big proponent of saying you got to spend two hours once a month with every marketing rep from every company. But I do think that it's worth your time to invest in a couple of times a month, having a conversation with your underwriter about what you're seeing, what they're seeing. And one of the best ways that you can help yourself define who your ideal prospect is going to be is through conversations like that. You may find out that you have an underwriter that's got an awesome product and, and, and strategy for a very specific class of business that nobody is, is submitting to that. That's gold to you. Right. Yeah. And so if you could go to every single carrier that you have in your agency and you just ask the one question, hey, what's a class of business that you really like, that you're really hot on, but you don't ever see from anybody? What does that look like? They're going it, to it, it's an open book test, man. I mean, you're going to know at that point. So if Liberty Mutual comes back to me and says, you know what? We really like commercial janitorial services. We don't want any of the small ones. We really like to have 50 or more employees and vehicles in the fleet so that we're getting a nice rounded account. But we will beat anybody in the marketplace on that. I'm immediately going to make commercial janitorial services an ideal prospect for the agency. Whether I'm the one who goes after it or I give it to one of my producers, I know everything I, I need to know about placing business with Liberty. And I think that sometimes the answers are so simple that it's as, as, as easy as having a conversation that we overcomplicate it or we don't value it. And that's one of the things that I've really challenged myself to do over the rest of this year. And then as COVID goes away, having the in-person meetings in 2021, we used to do that every single Monday, right? My That would be my staff meeting. Our meetings would go from nine until nine until one. Wow. Or 10 until one, rather. I'm sorry. So at 10 o'clock, or no, nine to one, nine to 10, we would have the um, producers come in and it would be me with all of the producers. 
And then from 10 to 11, I would have everybody come in and a carrier rep. And the carrier rep would have that hour to talk about everything. And then from 12 to 1, we would all have lunch as a group. We would have lunch brought in. And then from 1 to 2, I would meet with the, the service team. But we got away from that with COVID. And some of those conversations have sort of dwindled. And I think that's just low-hanging fruit. If there's one thing that I could tell anybody today, I might get better from here, but if I don't get any better in what we talk about in this podcast, I just gave you a path to a million-dollar book of business if you're yes. willing to put the work in. Exactly. And you know, just like you say later in the book, you have to slow down to speed up sometimes. Uh, you're not pe- People aren't willing to do that. So yeah, again, gold coming from David Carruthers, people. All right. So one thing that should speak to the loyal readers is that they should at least generate $500 in revenue or a thousand, or is it really how they're set up? Because if you are completely digital to where you never even speak to a client, I would assume that it could be lower um, versus if you're meeting with them all the time. So is there anything that you would say for that? Yeah. I mean, I think it all boils down to what you want out of your agency. Um, you know, for me, I, I say it all the time. If all you ever do, if, if you want to write two hundred and fifty to five hundred thousand dollar premium accounts, and all you ever prospect is two hundred and fifty to five hundred thousand dollar accounts, and you never deviate from that, there's a one hundred percent chance that you're only going to write mm-hmm. two hundred and fifty to five hundred thousand dollar accounts. The thing is, you have to make that de- definition. You have to decide what's right for your agency, and so. You know, I can't speak on this necessarily from a position of authority because we do have that minimum revenue threshold. We have developed a bit of a small business unit at this point for inbound calls where it's essentially an account manager who gets a little spiff if, you know, in commission to write something. But instead of me eating 40%, I'm eating, you know, I'm giving 10% commission in addition to whatever they're making in their base salary. But if I were to look at this, if it morphs and moves in the direction that, that I think it could go, carriers give, have given us the path. Our job, if, if we're going to write everything, our job no longer becomes managing revenue as much as it is managing profitability. And so by being able to outsource to service centers and places that can handle those basic things for you, you end up being able to make more money on those smaller accounts. But the service centers have it figured out, right? You know, yes. you give up a little commission to to put it with the service center. And so you have to run that calculation too. I would argue that if they're only taking a point of commission off of 15, I'm cool with that. Please take it. I'll happily take 14% to not have to lift a finger. But we haven't made we haven't made that jump yet because there's just so many other things that go into the process of writing that small account, right? You got time quoting it. You have time getting the underwriting information. You have time following up a hundred times asking for the underwriting information you don't have or the loss runs or whatever else. And so I, before I ever dipped my toe into that water, I would want to make sure that our process for getting the front end of that business handled is 100% on lockdown because if it's not, you're going to lose before you've ever had the first dollar flow in. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree. I mean, in our agency, we do have a few accounts that we put with the service center that we wrote them and we just said, you know what, you can call XYZ Insurance Company directly. And even one of the companies that we work with, uh, if someone calls in and we don't necessarily want to quote them. We just send the information to them. If they write it, we get, a, I don't know, like four or five percent, but we never have to touch it. There are again. literally there are agencies out there right now that all that they are doing, if I were to boil it down to the rawest definition, they're affiliate marketers. They're not agents. They're not agencies. And they, they know this. Like the people that I know that are in this area right now would be the first ones to tell you all they're doing is controlling internet traffic. And mm-hmm. so their goal is to drive an inbound call. And when you know, through click to call ad campaigns or whatever it is, when the phone is answered, a warm transfer is made to the insurance carriers sales center. And then wow. they take everything over. They sell the policy, they service the policy. And in the meantime, my buddy's getting commission for it. 
mean, you could have a VA be the one that answers the phone. Correct. He does. Wow. That's interesting. It's that nothing I would ever do. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't see myself ever doing that because I don't get, look, maybe if I was getting 4 million a year in, in, in a paycheck to do that, I would change my tune. But, you know, I don't get satisfaction out of that. I get the satisfaction out of the sale, the kill, the interaction with the client. I like everything about what I do. And so I would be averse to modifying yeah. my relationship with people to do something similar to that. doesn't mean it's wrong. It just doesn't mean I'm interested in going down that road. Right, right. Well, getting back to the ideal prospect, um, to help drive home this point, I like how you write about how does this prospect deserve a seat at the table? And the visualization of you sitting down at a round table, and I think about King Arthur when you, when I hear the word round table. Well, we do. We, we dress up in chain mail and we all have nice. swords. Nice, nice. Very nice. And yeah. Um, and so you have this round table and you're sitting there with all your clients and you have that one empty seat. And the thought of does this prospect that I'm going to contact to eventually present and eventually close, do they deserve to sit at this table? Now, I believe that this can go both ways because someone may read that or hear this and think to themselves, well, that's arrogant, you know, that someone doesn't deserve, you know, to be at the table, that they're not as good as someone else. But just like a $1,000 revenue account doesn't belong at a table with $25,000 revenue accounts, to me, the opposite is true. If you have a table full of $1,000 revenue accounts, you shouldn't bring in a $25,000 revenue account to that table. Is that correct? Yeah, it's it's not as much that, to be honest okay. with you. Um, okay. it, it is to a certain degree. I mean, that's certainly a factor that we look at. But when I look at things about who belongs at the table, I'm really looking at the moral compass and the values of that organization more than anything else. Interesting. The one, the one thing that I can say about every single one of the people in my in my personal book of business is not just the companies, but the people themselves, they're good people. They hmm. do a lot in the community. They, you know, they have their family life together. I, I just, I don't have anybody that I wouldn't feel comfortable leaving my kids with in my book of business. Okay. But I'm, you know, my relationships are deep. I have really good friendships with every one of my clients mm -hmm. and a good number of them have been with me over a decade at this point. So wow. there's a reason for that. But when I look at it, that's what I have to contemplate. Does this person fit? It's no different, Josh, than what I look at when I'm bringing somebody in killing commercial. Does yeah. this agency fit? Are these people going to fit the culture? Will they willingly participate and answer questions and ask questions and drive engagement? Do they have the right moral compass? The last thing I want to do is bring somebody in who does not fit the 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 um, characteristics of what I would consider to be an ideal client, and then I end up diminishing my value to every single other client that I represent. Number one, reputationally, they could look at me like, "What are you doing, man? Everybody knows this person's a crook. Why did you? Why are you representing them? Is there something about you that I don't know? I thought I knew you." The other thing is, a lot of times. People are going to constantly like we have an account that we brought on. It's revenue thresholds, right? Everything else. At least once a month, the guy complains about his auto insurance and wants every wants us to send loss runs, wants to go reshop it. And every time, you know, I've gotten to the point now where I just don't even take the calls. My account manager does and explains there's a reason why you're where you're at. Here's why. Go fire these four people. You know, if, if, if we go into this, but. That takes away from my ability to pay attention to the people that are, are driving the book and subsequently putting food on my family's table. So no, it's yeah. not an arrogant thing at all. It's, it's, it's protective. It's me making sure that if you're going to get invited to the dance, you know how to dance. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Yeah, it kind of goes back to in the equipping for battle, the last thing that you mentioned, which is the good attitude and how we talked about in the last episode, not just a good attitude for you as a producer, but for your clients to have that good attitude that fits, fits into the mold. So that takes us to the end of chapter two, but at the end of each chapter, you do have the extra two minutes. 
Um, and this is a story that I've heard, and I don't know if it's the same person or not, um, but it's a story that I've heard from someone uh, in the industry, Brent Kelly, about a salesperson who has only 25 clients. You know what? It would be interesting for me and Brent to compare notes and see. Yeah. In, in, I don't, you know, I'm trying to remember. It wasn't the guy, I think I alluded to, I heard about it at CIC. Okay. In, in one of the CIC uh, segments that I went to, but it wasn't the actual guy that was talking. He was talking about this person who had 25 accounts. They were all 100,000 or more in revenue, and he never quit prospecting. He always prospected. And if he found an account that was bigger than the smallest one on his in his book of business, and they fit all of the criteria that he wanted them to fit, he would bring that account in, and then he would hand the smallest account to a newer producer in the agency and split revenue or however he handled it with them. But it would help them get their book going and get them on their feet. But this guy was his book was over two point five million in revenue just using that strategy. But you're only servicing twenty five accounts. I mean, it's genius. Two a month. I mean, that's yeah. It. It's it's simple, but it's genius at the same yeah. time. Yeah, I mean, that's just when when I heard that story, I was like, yeah, it's genius. I wish, I wish that I could. Or I will get to that place. There we go. Speaking positive things. Very good. All right. So let's move on to chapter three, which is locate your ideal prospect. And so you begin the chapter using the rifle versus shotgun approach along with the throw it against the wall and see what sticks. And you do this to illustrate how important it is to take the extra two minutes to have data integrity. And so you go on to write about how your philosophy that for every $1 million in sales a prospect does equals about $1,000 in revenue for your agency, which means that you generally focus on companies, 5 to $50 million in sales. Um, I think in the book you may have mentioned 25 So then you write about how you purchase lists of C, uh, SIC codes from someone on Fiverr for around $20, and then you begin the process of scrubbing the list. And for the loyal readers out there, can you give them some other places besides maybe going to Fiverr where they could start putting together their list so they can start identifying their ideal prospect or, or, or I'm sorry, locating their ideal prospect? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've shifted. I think that you've seen this, right, going through some of the curriculum in, in um, Killing Commercial you don't have to buy lists anymore. You can just right. spend the time looking for what it is. And I mean, the free resources are good enough at this point. You can develop your entire list based off of that. So, I, you know, to give you some examples of people, things people like, I know people who are into the, you know, skiing or fishing or whatever else, they like boats. So they've gone out and launched a complete marine practice around boats. Then they start writing the marinas. Then they start writing the bait and tackle shops. Then they go after manufacturers of certain things or whatever else. So when I tell people, start with what you're passionate about or what you can need a need around, that's what I'm getting at. You know, Bob Klinger is one of the best that I've ever heard speak. He has an agency up in Maryland. And um, it's just, it's. we did a podcast with him that was fantastic. But he talked about how he built all of his niches and all of his um, the different angles that his agency takes. And it all started as a result of him writing dry cleaners, mm -hmm. right? So he started writing dry cleaners. Then he found out who sold them the equipment, then who worked on the equipment. You know, then he, he talked to them about relatives they had that were in other businesses. And it became, if somebody needed insurance, hey, just call Bob, just call Bob. Just call, I, I, You know, I, I would name my agency, just call Bob if I was him, because that's what everybody... <laughs> You know, that's what everybody you know knows about Klinger is this is the guy that you, know, you call it. It's, it's weird. His whole firm evolved around that one thing. He went to school to get a degree in dry cleaning. He's the only person in his English in his in his agency that has English as a first language. Really, he he went out and hired people from Korea, from China, from all of the other places, all of the other Asian countries in that in that pocket where his business niche was focused. And these people all come in and just crush it for him. But it's an interesting example. And I think, you know, we'll talk about slow down to speed up, but it goes back to what I was saying before. If you focus on identifying your ideal prospect and who that's going to be, 
Mm-hmm. It takes time to do that. It takes time to identify them and figure out where you want to go. It takes time to write your business plan. It takes time for you to do the research. But as you're doing all of these things, Did you hear that virtual intelligence and on-hand VAs actually merge? That's right. I was talking to Michael Cruz and checking out what he has there with his Colombian workers. And I said to him, dude, what's up? You realize you're not a VA, right? He said, what do you mean? I said, you're a VE. Look it up on ChatGPT. I encourage you to do that too. He's got forward-facing VEs. VEs that can answer the phone and take questions 30 days in. You say yes to Michael. I want what you have. In 30 days, that's what he delivers. I said, Michael, this is unbelievable. We're strong in the front, but we're really strong in the back end. You provide the external VE for us. We provide the internal VE. I looked at him. I said, buddy, let's do this together. Let's let's do this. And he looked at me and he put out his hand and like a good solid Cuban American, he said, Jason, I'm committed. Let's do it. And that's what we did. We flew to Columbia. We saw his operation and you need to see it too. Give us a little click at virtual Intel. That's with two L's. That's virtual I N T E L L dot com. Go check us out. See what we're doing. High quality VEs mixed with technology delivered right into your agency. And you don't have to do all the things that you don't like to do, like hiring, firing, recruiting, recruiting, trying to find processes. Just there's so much stuff. I can't even say it right. That's right. Virtual Intel cast certified. You're really making yourself stronger so that when it's game time, you're ready to roll. It's like the UFC fighter that has a full 12-week training camp, and you know there's two of them, right? And then all of a sudden, at the last minute, one pulls out, and inevitably, they call up the guy that, oh, this guy will take a fight on short notice. He'll fight anybody. Well, they put him in there, and he ends up getting his rear end kicked in most cases because he's not had that 12 weeks of time to prepare. If you're going to be successful, you're the person with the 12-week training camp. Everybody you compete against right now is that short-notice fighter, and that's because they'll write anything, anytime, anywhere for anybody, and that's not who you want to be. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's And, and if no one gets anything out of this podcast other than that is you have to know what you want to do and go after that and not just go after whoever to, to make a quick buck. Yeah, once you spend the time to identify the actual getting the lists by SIC code or whatever, that's an easy part of the process. Yeah. yeah. So once once you have the, this list, once the, the loyal reader has their list, you in your office, you divide that among your salespeople. Um, can you let the loyal readers know how many producers do you have in your agency? Because then that's going to kind of give them an idea of, you know, oh, this is how many people, you know, work uh, on David's team. And, you know, you don't need an office of 25, 50, 100 people to be able to to write the accounts that David is writing. You don't have to be, you know, the the, the big Marsh and, you know, Brown and Brown and, and agencies like that. So how many producers do you guys have in your office? We have five. So four of us are going, and that includes me, we're going out and actively producing middle market business. I'm supporting them to do that. So maybe I should say I only have four. And then I have one that's an internal person that does nothing but inbound um, and, and the smaller stuff that I don't want our outside production team to handle. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you don't have to have a massive amount. We had five and I ended up needing to make a decision on one of them. But, you know, Josh, again, you know, people say, how do you get to a $3 million agency? Well, it's pretty simple. If you have five producers and are writing $50,000 accounts, that's only 12 accounts per producer across five producers and you're at $3 million in agency revenue. One a month. Right. And that's only the first, that's only for one year. Like what exactly. do you do after that? Right. Exactly. So scaling agencies is not difficult. We get in our own way because we don't believe in ourselves and our ability to do that. And it's because of exactly what I said before. There's no pack. There's no training to get people there. Anybody can do it, man. I was slinging pork and beans at this time 25 years ago, right? And now I, I have a, a reasonably good agency. I've, I've got a great book of business with good clients. But if you can take me and have me learn this and be able to do it, I brought one thing to the table, man, work ethic. That's it. Work ethic and willingness to learn. And with those two things, if you've got that in, in your back pocket, you can be successful. 
if you're not successful and you have those two things, it's because you allowed the industry to taint you and you didn't bring, yeah. you didn't allow yourself to see through. Whenever you call over to Agency VA, ask for Ben or ask for Wes because they're the owners. I personally know those guys. A lot of you personally know them out there. And from what you know of them, they're exactly what they say they are. They care about the industry, they're invested in our industry, and they want you to be efficient. There's work that your CSRs are doing that they shouldn't be doing. There's work that your account managers are doing that they shouldn't be doing. There's work that your producers are doing they shouldn't be doing. You need to reach out to Agency VA because they should be doing it. Check them out at agencyva.com. So the next thing that you write about in the book is that your salespeople, and I think this is a key takeaway um, for the loyal readers, is that you have them do their own research instead of having it farmed out. So you have them build out the data so that they are familiar with it. Can you tell the loyal readers what is the type of data that your producers are looking for and what tools should they be using for that um, data? I know that there are some tools that will tie back to what we talked about in the last episode in under the equipping for battle. But what's that data that people should be gathering and what are some of the, t- the free tools or, or maybe paid tools that they should be using to gather that information? Yeah, I think that anything that they can do that is um, going to give them as much data as they can quickly, right? Because your goal in, in what you're doing, so I use Reference USA. I talk about that all the time. It's a great tool. It's free. You get your library. We talked about it. Um, you know, when we talked about the library card and equipping for battle and all that. But the reason yep. why I like to go to reference first is because I'm going to get a rough idea on sales and employees and everything else. So I have a quick and dirty rule of thumb. There's zero scientific fact to this, um, but it's it worked for me over the years and I've never missed on the wrong side of it. But I basically say for every million in sales that a client has, they're going to bring $1,000 of revenue to your agency. Now, I've maybe one time gone in, well, I do know of one time, and it's the only time that it's ever happened where I've gone in and thought, wow, this is going to be an awesome account. And it was a dog because of the way that it was set up. But for example, I've got plumbing companies right now that do $20 million a year. And you would think that based on my quick and dirty, that's 20000 in revenue, when in fact, they're between seventy five dollars and $100,000 in revenue because of the class code and all of the other stuff. So that's why I say I don't miss low doing that. So mm-hmm. you know, when people ask me who my ideal prospect is, one of the answers that I give is service contractors that have 25 or more vehicles in their fleet, 40 or more employees, sales of $5 million or more a year, and an experience modification factor of 1.0. I can go in to Reference USA and I can sort, I can pull a list, export it to Excel. Now I can sort. I can get everybody who has 5 million or more in sales, 25 or more, or 40 or more employees. And I can basically take the bottom half of that or what it, wherever the cutoff is and cut it out and either not touch it at all or give it to the person in the small business unit. Or just put it into our CRM and do a drip marketing campaign on them and let them become inbound leads to our small business. Yeah. Well, I think that your recommendation of Reference USA may help save the uh, the library uh, industry <laughs> through, uh, <laughs> with all the insurance agents going to uh, libraries to get a, a library card again. It's important to know it's only about 80% accurate, but it's accurate enough. And so my whole goal in going there first is... Let's just see if we're loosely going to fit the ideal client profile or ideal prospect profile. Then once we know that we fit that, now we can start drilling down. We're not wasting our time trying to research every account. Let's just you know take the quickest path with the least resistance to get as many things into the ideal prospect range as we can. Then you can go deep. Exactly. Now, let's talk about one of your favorite stories, or at least I think it is because I've heard you tell the story several times. So you write about you began your insurance career back in 2005 in Florida, mid uh, midst of a property insurance crisis. And the agency you worked for, you we've already talked about this, had an uh, appointment with Chubb and you were able to write the property insurance. And since this was such a large pain point for businesses in Florida, that was basically your in. 
So you go on to write about how one of your niches was manufacturing and that all the companies in the two counties focused on or that you focused on required an occupational license. So you could find information again on a free website. And so once you had that information, you went to secretary of state to get the FEIN, you got the owner's name, register agent's name. So you're able to, again, add more to, uh, to your database. Now, one thing that you mentioned and the loyal listener readers may wonder, why is it important to know when the business began? Um, now, to me, our agency prefers to do business with businesses that have been around for a while, because if you find someone new in business, they may not have. But if you start with someone who is new in business, they may not have loyalty to an agent, maybe a longer one does. So what is your philosophy on doing business with either businesses that have been around for a long time that are established um, or that have been that are new in business? Do you have a philosophy on how long some a business needs to be in business. Josh, I wish that I had like this unbelievably intellectual answer for you, but I, I really don't. The, it boils down to the fact that my carriers want people who have been in business three or more years. So if, you know, not all of them, but in this case, you know, again, Chubb is looking for, they're conservative. They're mm-hmm. looking for businesses that have established, businesses that have good financials, and all of those things. So in in this, that specific case, I was looking for established businesses because that's what my carrier wanted. Okay. I wonder if the insurance industry will ever change away from that once we begin to have more data to be able to support that, or if we'll just be stuck in our three years or more. Well, you know, it's interesting. We can get around it, right? So if I go in, let's just say I've got a brand new HVAC company that's opening up. If the guy's got 15 years experience as a foreman or, you know, a division leader or whatever for another HVAC company, they truly just wanted to go do their own thing now. That shouldn't be held against them. Right. You know, and so we'll, we'll all the time we'll get resumes and do narratives. Again, it goes back to what the extra two minutes, because if you want that account, you got to take the time to put the case together to explain to the company why they should write this, they're automatically going to say no. I never take no. I'm immediately going to push back and say, listen, this is a better risk than your average startup. Here's why. And then I lay out the case for them. And I can tell you most of the time, 90% or more of the time, the deal gets done because I made the case. Another important caveat to that is I don't abuse my relationships with my underwriters. If there's not a case to be made, I don't make it. In fact, they don't even see it. I, if I know I'm not going to be successful, I'm going to cut bait and not spend time with that particular carrier when I know I have to go somewhere else. But if it's something that I know in my heart needs to be there because that's the right market and it really would fit if they listen to the full story, we're golden. We're going to get it done every time. So one thing that you didn't necessarily mention, but maybe someone because it popped into my head What's your philosophy on blocking markets? I know some agencies do it, um, which damages the relationship between the underwriter and the agency. Um, but then some may say, I'm, I'm doing it to protect our agency or the client. So what's your philosophy on blocking markets? So to me, it's completely irrelevant because you either hire my agency or you don't. So when you hire my agency, you are required you know, we engage with an agent of record, broker of record letter to unlock anybody, any markets that have already been approached prior to you making that decision. I can see that, you know, and again, that's a different thought process, right? A lot of people still go out, they compete on price, they quote to win business and everything else. That's not what we bring to the table. By focusing on total cost of risk, we're always going to get better results and save a client more money than simply what they're going to save on their premium. And when we've had that discussion and they realize that the insurance policy placement becomes the funding mechanism for the value proposition that we deliver to our clients, we are, we're awarded the insurance relationship. And so we take an agent of record letter on a general agent of record letter. And then for each carrier that we may need one, we'll go out and get it. But we're not getting it because we're competing against somebody who's blocked the market. We're getting it because we've already won the deal. And now we just need to go to the business and place in the insurance very good. Very good. All right. So going along in the book. So once you've done the research and you, you had to u- reference USA 
but we've talked about this, um, to get sales numbers, number of employees. Um, and then in the book, you're talking about what you would do uh, back in you know 2005 time period with Chubb, how you would go out to make sure that the building would actually meet Chubb's guidelines. And it's important to note that if you've already put in the time to pre-qualify the prospect based on a certain criteria, you now need to continue qualifying them to make sure that they meet the insurance company's requirements. So you started off with, does it meet the agency's requirements? Now does it meet an insurance company? Because to me, it's like a three-legged stool. You need to make sure that all three legs are there and all three legs are sturdy. Just because two are super strong doesn't mean you can ignore the third leg. Um, now, the final step in determining if when is the best time to approach the prospect, you write in the book that there's not a way to know when property insurance was renewing, uh, but you can figure out when the workers' compensation renewed, which is now helpful to you in the way that you approach things. So the reason that you do that is because in Florida at the top, they have information online. So you're able to find that information to say, okay, the work comp is coming up this date and you can approach it. So for the loyal readers out there, is there something that you that they need to find out in the state that they live in to be able to kind of find that information? Like as far as figuring out, is there kind of in general, if you want to find out when workers' compensation is renewing, where should they look? Do you have any advice on how they could find that? Yeah, so far, every state that I've gone and looked at um, – has basically had the same type of workers' compensation database for their state that we have here in Florida. Many times, agents just haven't looked for it to know that it's there. And so um, I would say that the, the agencies that are heavy in commercial already probably do know about that. But a lot of the people that I'm dealing with are just moving down into middle market commercial. And so they've never looked there before and they don't realize that exists. I have found that that's the case. There are also paid services out there. I don't know why anybody would ever use them, but a lot of people do. I don't have to have them because of the way we, we market doing other things that we do. But, you know, the workers comp is what's statutory in every state, whether, you know, some of them, obviously, there's four monopolistic states, but for the other ones, it's statutory. Um, except Texas, you're not required to have it at all. But Texas has a database, which is crazy. That's interesting. Um, yeah, we found that. Um just through exploration, but that's the whole thing, man. I mean, you need to uh, you need to use those free resources, and if you start digging around, it's amazing what you can find. Just even even inside the resources that you thought you knew about, spend some mm -hmm. time really clicking through and looking to see what else you can find. I'll give you an example. I've used the workers' comp database for years. Well, what um, I didn't know is that there was also a database of everybody in Florida who had been issued a stop work order by the Department of Financial Services because they did not have evidence of workers' comp. Okay, hmm. so it could be a manufacturing facility. Something slips through the cracks. The comp has lapsed. An inspector shows up. Bam, you just got a stop work order and a bunch of fines. So we made a workflow around that. Every morning when Raphael comes into work, he goes into that database and looks for the three counties in the general vicinity of our offices. And he then reaches out to contact every company that had a stop work order. Now, I can realize that if I realize that if there's agents out there, which there are listening to this, you're thinking, why do you want somebody who had a stop work order? That doesn't sound ideal at all. Well, number one, because it could have been an accident and I'll go in and see that. We can then look to see, holy crap, these guys have had continuous comp for 10 years in a row. This is nuts. How did this happen? Or the new one is that a lot of these people are in employee leasing companies, right? So if if you have somebody who's in an employee leasing company and then they go to the um they, they go out to a job site, but let's say they get to the job site like crap, we need two more guys today. And so they say, Go call your brother in law, see if he can come in and drag trash from the construction site to the dumpster or whatever else. They haven't run that guy through the process that needs to be gone through to get him added to leasing. They're just gonna pay him you know, cash labor for the day. Mm. So guess what? Department of Financial Services shows up and they realize you're with an employee leasing company. They're going to ask you to prove that each one of those people that are on the job site are covered by the comp for that leasing company. This guy, they can't prove that. So now they have a stop work order in place. And the angle that we take is we understand through dealing with the DFS in Florida multiple times 
how to negotiate those fines and penalties to reduce them to as low as they possibly can be. And then we also go after them to, to place their business as a result of helping them with that. So it's not that it's necessarily... Now, look, the other subset of these people just run dirty businesses and we don't want anything to do with them. So you know, the first thing is find the stop work order. The second thing is go look and see what the history is. And if the history is bad, we're not even going to reach out to them to begin with. Yeah. Oh, very good. Very good. So this brings us to the end, almost the end of, of chapter three. Um, but I want to, to go over to kind of prove if, if someone, if a loyal reader hasn't really bought into this mentality of being able to identify and locate your ideal prospect about how successful you were doing it. So in the first year, when you had put together your list, you only made it through the letter E and generated almost $500,000 in revenue, which ended up meaning $250,000 in commission and bonuses for you. And what blows my mind and maybe the loyal readers as well is that some agencies may not even hit 500,000 in revenue in the first five years that they or, are in. or ever, ever, ever. <laughs> exactly. And you did it in one year because you took the time to build out that list to identify and locate your process. Um, now there what prospect now there was one thing and I want to ask you about it your appointment setter. And I wasn't familiar with this until I read the book. Can you tell the loyal readers what an appointment setter is, who that person is, if you're comfortable? And do you still have that? Uh, do you still have someone doing that at Florida Risk Partners? So God love her. She passed away last year or the year before. And so I was doing everything in my power to recruit her out of retirement to at least come in and spend a day or two days with us so that I could bring somebody that wanted to do that in and have Marlene train them. But to say that she's an appointment setter is such an understatement. I mean, she was, I call, I, I would call her a, a business development manager or something along those lines. This lady was a telemarketer on steroids. She had an ACT database that was 25 years old. When she wow. called, when she called a gatekeeper, it wasn't a gatekeeper. It was her friend. She was used to talking to them several times a year for 25 years. She had notes in the system. She knew the kids' names, the pet names, what sports they played, what schools they went to, all of this stuff. And so, to get an appointment set with, get her to set an appointment was not difficult at all. And so, a lot of agencies out there try and use appointment setting services, or they try and bring that skill in house. And they're not as successful as they could be. One of the things that was unique in the relationship with her was she actually went out and got her 220 license so that she could split commission. She had no interest in ever selling insurance. She wanted to split commission. And so I think that's a part where people miss. You know, a lot of these services that are out there will pay. You're paying for a booked appointment. Then you show up and the appointment's garbage, right? She wasn't. She, she got a revenue share when business was closed. So she had a base salary that she made. But then if I went out and closed a piece of business that she booked the appointment for, she got 10% of that. So I paid 5% out of my commission. She paid, and then the agency paid the other 5%. It was insane. When she booked an appointment, it was like Christmas morning for me. I would walk in, I would get to my cubicle. And the only thing that was missing was a big red bow on the manila folder that was sitting on my desk because she gave me the history of all the times she called the account. She could tell me who the relationships were with, who the agencies had been over the years, news clippings of articles. Like I'm telling you, man, this was like insane, the level of detail that I had. And in turn, the other thing was she made, she understood, and I talk about this. I stole this from her to a certain degree, but she prepared that person when the appointment was booked. So it wasn't, here's the meeting invite. It was, hey, I'm going to send you a meeting invite and some information on our firm, some information on David, blah, 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 blah. And boom, she would send the appointment, the, the, the calendar invite to them. It would have my bio attached. It would mention a couple of other companies uh, around them that I represented personally, gave them some information on the firm, and she was ready to roll. I mean, we did so well because of her. I would love to take credit for it, but I'm going to be honest with you. She truly was probably the biggest partner I've had in my entire career 
in the insurance industry, period, bar none. There's nobody that will ever have a greater impact or has had, I shouldn't say will ever, but there's nobody that's had as great of an impact on my career as what she did. And it's because we worked so well. Now it started with my process, but she took what I gave her and she ran with it, man. And I mean, it was just magic. I loved working with her and I was so fortunate. What I found is that people inherently are greedy. So I was the top producer at my firm by a landslide. And at the end of the year, everybody comes up and says, how did you do it? How did you do it? And I said, it's real simple. I figured out that 35% of something's better than 100% of nothing. You guys are so greedy and not wanting to give up five points to your commission. I have her as a captive audience. Heck yeah. She's not calling for you because you don't want to give up 5%. I've got 100% of her attention. We're just shooting fish in a barrel over here. you know. And meanwhile, you're struggling, right? And I think that's the biggest thing. Where, where agencies fall short is the ability to have that uh, organic production from scratch. Everybody's got a Rolodex. At some point, your Rolodex runs out of cards. What do you do then? Right. Well, for, for people who are familiar with the show Suits, she sounds like Donna, if you're familiar with that. She was your Donna. I have never seen that show, but I will watch it now. Yes, it is, is an excellent, excellent show. So, well, thank you for that. Now, in the extra two minutes in the book, there's something that you write in the final paragraph, and I want to read it. It says, people don't sell to companies. They sell to people. People don't buy from companies. They buy from people, period. And this is similar to the phrase that really irks me, and it's not personal. It's just business. Because to me, I'm a person and that's what makes it personal. It's always personal. And yeah, it just it, it's a soapbox for me. So to wrap this up, would you mind telling the story, because I love your stories, about the manufacturing company that you met with when he was having an issue with a local zoning company, how you went in and talked to him about that. You didn't even talk about insurance and what ended up with that. Yeah, no, that's great. And it's actually another thing that I can give Marlene credit for because I wouldn't have known as much about the zoning and everything had she not put that together and and made sure I knew about it. And then I dove deeper into the research and looked at court records and everything else. But I mean, it was an interesting situation. Um, This company was in an unincorporated part of Pinellas County, which is on the other side of the bay from Tampa. And they were being force zoned into the city of Largo. Okay. And so what that meant was there was going to be a significant increase in their utilities cost, their property taxes, and and some other things that had to do with that transition. And it was, it was bad. It was going to be a significant hit to the company that they had no real control over. They didn't ask to be zoned, none of this. And I, and I followed the, the case. And so when I went in, she booked that appointment. It was the first appointment. And when I went in, the first the first thing I said is, look, I realize you know that I'm here to talk to you about your insurance and risk management stuff. We need to set that to the side for a second. I want you to know I'm pulling for you. I've watched everything that's going on. And I know that this has got to be taking a toll on you. And I said, I just want to let you know there's some of us out there that do follow this stuff. And I got, you know, I'm behind you 100%. If there's anything at all I can do to help you further your objective, let me know. And the guy for 20, 25, 30 minutes, whatever it was, just unloaded about how much stress it was causing him and the problems it was causing at home. And, you know, his, his marriage was suffering, his family was suffering and just kept going on and on and on. And at the end of it, we started talking about the other stuff, but I, I had already won him over. Because I wasn't going in with my agenda. My agenda was whatever he wanted to talk about, right? And so he, it, it was crazy. I, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, people ask, I think Cass always asks, is it luck or is it skill? Yes. I, think, I think it's both. You know, there was some luck involved. What I found out was that this guy was with a large bank owned agency. It wrote middle market accounts. It was $750,000 in premium. Wow. Okay. He had no agent. He was a quote house account. He was assigned to an account manager. Nobody ever came out and talked to him about renewal. They never personally visited him about 
updates to renewal exposures or anything else. And here I am, their competitor walking in, don't even talk about insurance, hit him between the eyes with the one thing that he's passionate about and, and most concerned about and just sit there and patiently listen and let him unload about all of this stuff. I won before I ever realized I'd won. I didn't yeah. even know any of that at the time. I didn't know that until after they were my account. And he said, he, he told me, he said, you know, he said, I'm so glad to have a relationship. with it's, it's great to be able to have somebody that I know will listen and, and, and is looking at the best interests of my business in general, not just here to sell me insurance, which goes to what I say all the time. Don't sell a product, solve a problem. If you can solve problems, you will never have to worry about selling deals. If you go in and you tie yourself to the sale of a product, you are going to be perceived as a salesman, not an advisor. Salesmen are disposable. Trusted advisors are not. Yeah. Well, that's good. Well, that wraps up our second episode. Wow, man. I'm going to train over the weekend. All right. I know, I know we got a couple coming up. I'm going to swim some laps in the pool this weekend yes. so that I'm, I'm ready to go. But it's been fun, man. Yeah, yeah. So um, the next episode, we're going to be looking at the next part of the book, which is marketing, which I think may be your favorite part of the book. Um, so I want to thank the loyal readers for downloading another episode of Explain This Book to Me, where I sit down with authors, thought leaders, and visionaries to explain the book to them and have them answer questions that I have. Remember to be safe, be healthy, and love everyone. This has been Josh Lipstone with Explain This Book to Me.